yeah, whatever you want to start. All right. My name is Josh Alvarez. And I'm Liam O'Donnell. And you're listening to episode 134 of Cinepunks. Cinepunks! <laughs> we did it, y'all. We did it. I know. Every, 134 times. Every single we time it. we're like, the, we get the, uh, once we passed 100, <laughs> every episode after 100 is like a milestone. Like, we, yeah, we fucking made it. Our haters yeah, said like, we couldn't dude, do you it. You don't even know. <laughs> Fuck, a 134. <laughs> It only took us way longer than it should. Seven years. What yeah. the fuck? What the what the hell? But hey, man, I'm just happy to be here. You know what I'm saying? Happy to be at the show. Yeah, man. We made it. Yeah. <laughs> Today, uh, it's a special episode, not just because anytime me and Josh put our voices to digital tape, it's it's a special occasion. But also, we have a special guest. We have someone with us who I've been a fan of for a while now, and I know for a fact that we have listeners who also love his show. Uh, we have Dave White of Linoleum Knife here with us as a guest. Hi, Dave. Hey, how y'all doing? Yo, I'm so stoked right now. I'm I'm very well, and I'm I'm stoked for two reasons. One, uh, you know, I'm a Linoleum Knife fan. Uh, friends of the show people who work for cinepunks behind the scenes are fans of your podcast um but also uh i feel like you really have set up a fun conversation for us today because we're talking about um tropical malady and cemetery of splendor two films by a director whose name you're going to pronounce for us right now well i'm, I'm gonna tell you i'm gonna i'm gonna try to pronounce his name right, i do not right. claim to be perfect at pronouncing his name, but I have tried over the years to uh, get to a good phonetic pronunciation uh, because he is Thai. Uh, his name is Apishatpong Wirasethakun. And I know that I just did that incorrectly. If someone speaks Thai and they know <laughs> how to say his name, that I haven't gotten it quite right. I also know that in the course of his career, he often encourages people who are not Thai to simply call him Joe. But I feel like that's, for me, that would feel like cheating. I want to try. I want to try to do it right. I want to try to do justice to this man's incredibly cool name. And so, and because he's one of my very favorite filmmakers, I will keep trying and learning how to do it better. I appreciate that. And uh, honestly, it's for me, I've never been in a situation where I've had to try to pronounce his name because we haven't discussed him on the show yet. I've never right. been on recording. And so and often with people, what I hear a lot is uh, we shorten when we don't know how to pronounce someone's name, we shorten the reference to them to their work. So when people have talked to me about this director, they've said, you know, the Uncle Boon Me guy. The that's Uncle Boon Me guy. Right. That's what they <laughs> right. say. And yeah. I don't know why Uncle Boon Me was the movie that seems to have really brought him out into people's attention if you look at it it has the most reviews of people i know on letterboxd yes. even the reviews of tropical malady were often by people who first saw uncle boon me and then went back right. um yeah. and i don't know why that is i don't know if it had more distribution or what but it did it did it had a deeper distribution uh, arm in the united states it won the palm door at the Cannes film festival yeah. of the oh, year. Sure. Yeah. it was released and so that was his biggest in terms of like awards and critical attention, that was uh, his other films. If you want to talk about them this way, they were sort of leading to this breakthrough uh, internationally. And pretty much everybody I know who knows his films, uh, Uncle Boomy was perhaps the first 
thing that they saw. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh it's yeah. It, it it's the sort of movie that on one hand I think is as um challenging as a lot of his other films and yet yeah. it has a mondo poster. So, you know, yeah, it, it exactly. kind of walks that line, which I, I'm yeah. not saying with any judgment. I have the Mondo poster, so yeah. <laughs> uh, I definitely picked it up with great joy when I found and it. And we, uh, we are referring to anyone who might not know this film. We're simply, we have, we have shortened the title of this film. The film's title is Uncle Boonmi, Who Can Recall His Past Lives. Isn't there something just magical about the title itself? I mean, I know it's from oh, a yes. novel of the or oh, a story yes. of the same of a similar name. Is it? Is it? I think the original story isn't Uncle Boon Me. It's a beautiful recall. title of a film. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, um, anyways, uh, for those of you who may not know, uh, Dave is co-host of Linoleum Knife with his husband Alonzo Duralde. Uh, he also writes for the Rap, and you wrote a memoir, which, by the way, Dave, is not easy to find. Good. I was, I was very much. I was very much like, you know, we're having Dave on. I wonder if I should get the memoir and try to read it before he comes on. And no. I couldn't. You could maybe get it from a used bookstore. It's or a mediocre uh, book that uh, <laughs> that I, is out of print, and I'm not upset about that. Okay. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, no judgment. I understand that feeling of you. Just, sometimes you do things in the past that you don't want people to find. Side note, uh, I, I, stop trying I, to find my band's record. Yeah, people, it's not please. that I don't want people to find have it. it on CD. I hate you. Yeah. I, I don't I don't I don't like want to warn people away from it. I sure. just, you know, it was it's it was it, I started writing it 20 years ago. It came out in 2006. And so I'm a different kind of writer now and I look at it back and I see all I see now are the things that I think are egregiously wrong about it. And so I just sort of think to myself, eh, I don't care if it's out of print. I'm, 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 I'm a 2021 person now, <laughs> not a, not a 2005 person. So. Yeah, yeah, I feel that. <laughs> um, okay, well, we want to thank you for coming on the show. We're very excited that you're here. Josh, who else do we want to thank for this episode? We would like to thank our beautiful patrons at Patreon who've been supporting us financially and giving their hard-earned cash to ensuring that our show can continue on to episode 135, perhaps. Yeah, and as well as the other uh, shows on the network, we really appreciate uh, the support you've given. We know not everyone's a Cinepunks person. Maybe you were brought here because of Evil Eye or Horror Business or whatever it is, uh, but we're really thankful that you're a part of the family. Um, as usual, we're going to make the same promises that we have more content coming. Um, uh, uh, honestly, we're, we're kind of reorganizing post uh, the pandemic that some of our shows took a hit during the pandemic and we don't know if they're coming back. Other shows seem to be coming back even stronger than before. And as usual, we have some new projects in the works that are not quite ready to be announced, but we think are going to be really great, including new events on Twitch. Wait, events on Twitch? Do we do events on Twitch? I don't know. Maybe we do. Uh, if you want to know more about that, uh, well, if you're a patron, you know all about it. And if you're not, I don't know. I guess just pay attention on the internet and maybe we'll mention it. Or maybe we won't. Who knows? It's certainly not because these events are not entirely legal. Okay, moving on. Uh, we also want to thank our sponsors at uh, Lehigh Valley Apparel Creations. Look, uh, LVAC is obviously the best screen printer in the Lehigh Valley, but we also think they might be one of the best screen printers in the world. Uh, if you would like to know whether they are or not, you're going to want to head over to xlvacx.com uh, and check out their work, check out their prices. Um, 
we really recommend them not just because they support the show uh, and that they're friends, Chris Reject being a, a good friend of not only me, but Josh as well. Uh, we recommend them because we don't think anyone can offer you the same level of professionalism and personality, that they are actually normal humans who will treat you like a normal <laughs> human and interact with you, not like some sort of cold business, but like actual people, but then do the kind of work you would expect from one of these uh, expensive websites, you know, that they are doing high end work, but uh, as a DIY punk rock company. Uh, I guess that's it. Josh, you have anything to say at LVAC before we move on to Essex? Um, they're awesome and they're our homies. So please tell them that Cinepunk sent you and they will probably, uh, not give a shit. So there you go. <laughs> uh, we also, this very day, I don't think it's up yet. It'll be, uh, oh no, it's probably up right now, actually. Uh, wow. We not only have our sponsors, Essex Coffee Roasters, we are today launching our own signature Cinepunks blend at Essex Coffee Roasters, the Santa Cafe blend. Yes, is that a Santa Sangre reference? Yes, it is. Did we also <laughs> drop our new episode of Jodorowsky, our exploration of Alejandro Jodorowsky's movies, uh, focusing on the Holy Mountain today? Yes, we did. Is that a coincidence? No, it is not. So you can listen to the latest episode of Jodorowsky while you order our Jodorowsky-inspired coffee design blend. It's it's from it's also specifically a Mexican blend, so even more Alejandro up in the mix. So uh, yeah, also a big up to co-conspirator Hot Love yes. for designing the 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 cover for the the bag of coffee, and uh, it's cool, man. This is it's, my second. It's pretty cool. This is my second sponsored by Essex Coffee Roasters blend. Just saying. Number I know. Two. It's funny since you don't even <laughs> like good coffee, so it's like a weird. Yeah, I know. Nor did I get the first one either. So yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> it's cool. <laughs> oh jeez. Okay. Um. Anyways, head over to Essex Coffee Roasters. Look, Essex. Uh, they roast to order. Uh, you order your coffee. They roast it when you order it, so it's fresh as hell. They send it out to you. It's Aaron Dahlbeck from uh, Bain and Be Well. He's the best. Converge, uh, yeah. Converge as well. Uh, he's just a great dude. It's a, it's a real small business. He's just getting it going, and you want to be a part of this thing. So head on over there and check it out. Um, we're going to encourage people not to use their Cinepunks 10% off code when ordering our signature blend. Why? Well... Uh, it cuts into the cut we get from the blend. <laughs> if you want, if you want to use it, it's okay. It's just you know, if you can afford not to get ten percent off your Cinepunks blend, we would like that as well. But if you are ordering other things and you want to get that ten percent off, just enter the code C I N E P U N X at checkout. Ten percent off coffee, tea. Dave, I know you're a tea person. They got tea over there. Uh, cool T-shirts and hoodies. It's, a, it's yeah. a cool place. All right. That covers it. We're done with the sponsors. We love you, Aaron. Uh, keep an eye. If you're wondering, want more information about the blend, keep an eye on our social media. We're going to be posting a bunch of stuff about it. Uh, or just head over to SSCoffeeRoasters.com and you'll see the information. Okay, good. What do we do now, Josh? What's There's something we do now. There's like a segment we have right now. What is it called? Yeah, Dave. I know you're new here. I'm not sure if you're aware. Although you did say that you listened to the show, which yes. blows my mind, because why yeah, would crazy. I? You know what I'm saying? I don't know why. <laughs> Other than you know, staring social commentary and film criticism. <laughs> we do a thing here. Uh, yes. That we've done 133 times prior to now, and yet the what? name escapes me. It escapes me. What is it called, Josh? I don't. Uh... 
have it starts with a W. Yeah, it does. Uh I believe it's called <gasps> Whack it, it on, on track. track. <laughs> Dave, I love that you did it. Oh my god. <laughs> Dave did it at the same time we did. Okay, cool. That was great. <laughs> that makes me very happy. <laughs> So Dave, I was gonna say wow, 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 like the Kylie Minogue song. No, I yes, I didn't want to derail. Yeah. Oh my god! Also appropriate. I will say right now. Side note, Dave, your obsession with Kylie Minogue has like encouraged me to go back because I've been a fan. What was the? There was one song that like got really big on MTV. It had a lot of can't, close-ups. Can't get you out of my head. Yes. Come on, man. Oh, come on, oh, man. How man. about the, the duet that she did with Nick Cave? Well, that's what yeah. I'm saying. I've gone yeah. back now. Oh, I've gone yeah. back. Baby Jesus. I've been a fan, but I had like, you know, look, we all here on this podcast, everyone who's on the call, we all listen to a lot of music. And so you go back and forth on stuff. And I had not been on the Kali Minogue train for a while, but because <laughs> you kept bringing her up, I got back on and now I'm very much like in that lane and it's it a good train to ride I'm saying on is yeah <laughs> if you're watching uh the drag race down under season of the um the oh, new geez. zealand and australian queens <laughs> there has been a lot of kylie love this season of course and of course yeah, well, i live i live for it it's fucking beautiful just saying man be. and her sister did you know she has a sister that's she, a singer as well danny i'm aware yeah. but i've never i've never checked out danny well, they're both being lip synced for their life too <laughs> on this season of RuPaul's Drag Race Down Under. Get Dave, Dave, Josh is a huge Drag Race fan. You should know that. Oh, that's cool. I can I tell you, I, I, I I'm a haphazard watcher of Drag Race. Just I've sometimes. never, wa- I've actually never watched I've, it. I, I see it when I see it. I don't like you know. I'm 100 queer, and so many of my friends are obsessed with it, and. I just am sort of like, well, you know, I sure like I I love drag queens and I and I like the competition angle of all of it and I but I I can't commit to the show. You know right. what I mean? So I see it I see it when I see it. I'm more It's a lot of drag. Me and Josh, sure. me and I Josh. Mean, here's the thing, it's a perpetual rotating like when like they just started Drag Race España and then like you know, we had Drag Race Canada. And it's just, there's like, there's never a time. It's like the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. No matter where you are, no matter yes. what time, at yes. any time, there's always one episode of that playing somewhere. Somewhere. Yeah. Sure. So, uh, yeah. Me and Josh bond more on Legendary because I am a, mm-hmm. uh, I'm more of a ballroom person than a drag person, though I do appreciate the drag events I've been to in person. The show is just, it feels like a lot to commit to. Whereas, um, well, this is a funny thing about me, Dave. I learned about ballroom at church. Uh, really? I worked at a church called Broad Street. <laughs> I, I, when me and Josh first, like, uh, so we've known each other for a long time through shows, but we first started hanging right. out a lot and then formed the podcast. Later in life, post-seminary for me, I was working at a church called Broadway Ministry that really functioned as a community center. And so we did a lot of outreach with folks who were homeless, and we did a lot of events there, and I was the arts curator there. And so we did everything from, like, uh, you know, highfalutin plays to, like, hardcore shows there, like, all kinds of stuff. And um, a group came to us that was trying to do a drop-in center for foster kids who were living in the neighborhood on the street and were not getting the sort of medical attention that they needed. And once they started that center at Broad Street, 
Broad Street started becoming home to more kiki balls than mainstream ballroom, but right. would host these kiki events because that was really just getting started in Philadelphia. Like it, it was still pretty, not new, but like it wasn't as big as it is. Kiki's kind of big now, but at the yes. time it was not as big. And so just going in some random old ass church to do a kiki was like totally cool. And so we would host those. And like I had seen Paris is Burning, but I was one of those people who thought that was a New York thing. And I had no idea that it was like actually fully international and everywhere. And in fact, yeah. Philadelphia is like the second city of ballroom. I had no idea. And I right. only learned that through these folks that were working at the church. And uh, they were super cool and like very much were like, oh, you know, like even though our church is compared to other churches, like that church compared to most churches was sort of like a bastion of heathen and sin. Like it was very much like a, a hedonist heretic uh, den yeah. compared to these folks. We were still uptight church people and they were very welcoming to us into their world because <laughs> they were not impressed with our, with our fucks and with uh, uh, other people's casual drinking. That was right. not impressive to them. You no. know, they, they, no. they were like, yeah, you're, you're still normal people. You know, it was like uh, they, they needed to help us understand this world that like was around the corner like we were in the neighborhood but like we knew like we had a lot of folks from the neighborhood who are part of our community but they were all the like you know uh very sort of um professional not sort of living on the street living in that world um and so learning about like oh wow without these houses and without ballroom a lot of these kids would have nowhere to go, you know? And that was really important to us because we were trying to understand all the aspects of homelessness that we were addressing because that church was very much about addressing homelessness. Okay, sorry. Right. That's where I learned about ballroom was at church. And I think that's funny and I tell people that all the time. Anyways, <laughs> uh, so Dave, would you like to go in our whacking on Track segment first, second, or third? Uh, Well, you know, as the guest, I like to be first. I love that. Go for <laughs> Let's it. Let's do it. Uh, I have two things that are whack this week. One of them uh, is serious. One of them is somewhat less serious. The serious thing is there are anti-transgender bills in state legislatures all around the country right now. It's so fucked. Goddamn Republicans, who I would like to just line up and punch a bunch of them, um, are responsible for this. And they're only doing this because they are trying to distract people from the fact that they have no other plan for anybody other than you know oppression and uh, destroying things and they lost the fight for marriage equality so they're going to go after the queer people who are even more vulnerable and that's trans folks and this is happening everywhere you turn now and it's got me so furious all the time um Anything that you can do as a as a citizen uh, is appreciated, but one thing you can do is if you live in a red state with Republicans in charge, you can call up your legislators and scream at them because they love to hear from you. Yeah, I just, it's hard. It's, I mean, obviously also shout out to our friends in the UK where they've been dealing with a lot of this as well. And I've uh -huh. been talking to friends who are trans in the UK who've had to deal with some crazy shit over there. But it's, you know, the same thing is happening here. It's It might not be happening where you are. If you're in a certain kind of city or whatever, you might not see this sort of thing. Right. But it's, it's way more common than people realize. And we need to like, I mean, I, again, I, I don't want to, I know people don't like it. It, when you're out here being like, you need to do this, but I think this is an emergency. And so I feel it is comfortable an saying yes. you need to care about this and you need to get involved because folks are going to be dealing the, 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 
the numbers of ways they found to dehumanize uh, trans folks, non-binary folks, anyone who's not conforming to their gender expectations is horrifying. It's truly horrifying, yeah. and it's really upsetting. In terms of people needing to do things, I know it sucks that life can't just be fun I all can. the time. Yeah, right. But like, there are unfortunately three dozen emergency things that thoughtful people need to be concerned about right. and doing anything they can for, and it takes you 120 seconds to email or phone your representative and voice your opinion to them. And that is the bare minimum that you can do. And you can do it while you're having your tea. And so, um, or your coffee or your morning, uh, martini or whatever it is you're having, you can do it (laughs) there. Um, my other whack is, as I said, somewhat less uh, urgent or uh, bad, but I just tried making grape nuts cereal hot for the first time. And that is, (laughs) it is bullshit and you should not do it. (laughs) When you guys, I heard you guys mention that briefly on uh, linoleum knife and fork. And I thought, fuck, no, never. No, thank you. You know, I like to try (laughs) things for the first time and someone recommended it. They're like, oh yeah, just pour hot milk or cook it in milk for a few minutes. And, and, and it'll be hot, like a hot cereal. And I, you know, I love grape nut cereal, but Oh man, that is, it's not good. Don't do it. I, I did it I mean, so you happened? don't have to. What did now? something, did it become like oatmeal? What happened? It became like a mushy sludge. Yeah. yeah. No crunch. I disagree. That's nothing. terrible. Nope. Yeah. yeah. I do think Crime. there are, there are people, there's a segment of the population that wants to decrunchify grape nuts, thus yeah. eliminating the attractive part of grape nuts. Like, yeah. I, I just don't <laughs> believe you when you're like, well, grape nuts are so good when they've turned into pure mush. Why? What is that? What is the attraction? I don't know what it is yeah. you're searching for in this cereal. I it's love like a mushy pop out of Pop Rocks. Yeah, I mean, I love a mushy cereal. I'm a huge fan of Weetabix, um, but like, <laughs> I like if I if if I'm in the mood to crunch, I need grape nuts to be crunchy. Yeah, Dave. Dave, have you ever seen the Weetabix uh, advertisements, the cartoon yes. skinhead ones? Yes. yes. There's there's an oi band from yes. the UK I really like called the Chisel, and yeah. they put out a seven inch that was a bunch of Weetabix, and it was so funny because all the people not from the UK were like, "Why do you have hash browns on the cover of your fucking seven inch?" And they're like, "No, it's the Weetabix skinheads." And they were like, cereal. "No yeah. one knew what they were talking." About. It was so yeah. funny. And then finally, the dude he, I, I follow them on Instagram, and I talked to them sometimes, and dude was like. Like, I mean, we like hash browns. That's fine too, but this is a very specific <laughs> cultural right. reference we're making. Yes, yeah, you can you can find them in your better grocery stores in the United States. Uh, yeah. But um, and by better, I just mean anyone that stocks Weetabix. So, sure. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Any any on track for us, buddy? Yes, there's a documentary. Uh, that is in recent release, uh, perhaps still at art house uh, cinemas uh, in the United States, um, and almost certainly very soon to be streaming. Uh, in fact, it might already be streaming. I don't have current information in front of me, uh, but it is called State Funeral. Oh, and I've heard of this. Yeah, yeah. Is yeah. an entirely archival uh, footage based documentary about the death and funeral ceremonies that lasted for a complete week in Russia uh, when Joseph Stalin died in the 50s. And 
Let me tell you, it is mesmerizing, and there's almost no dialogue at all other than, you know, uh, official state announcements over loudspeakers that are translated at the bottom of the screen. Um, and it is just a flabbergasting display of what an, an, a, 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 an authoritarian state apparatus uh, can do. Um I, it's it's you will not believe your eyes when you watch this movie. It's just it it, it must be experienced. Uh, it's called State Funeral. I highly recommend it. I really want to see it. I'm I've been kind of curious about it too because we just on one of my other podcasts we just covered the Iannucci comedy, The Death of Stalin. Yes, and and I was I <laughs> double was talk- feature time. <laughs> well, and I was talking about how like well a bunch of this stuff you know one of the things that my co-host was like well it's unclear how much of this is historical and I was like oh sir I did the research most of it is not so you have to ask yourself why is why is this stuff included in this movie like what's the purpose and I actually have to give a shout out to one of our listeners. We, on the episode, I said, hey, I love this movie. I think it's really funny. I do wonder about Iannucci, and I wonder what his politics are, because as I'm laughing at this thing, is there some sort of like subversive criticism of the left in general? Right. And Doug was like, I don't think so, because he does these other shows, and they're great. And one of our listeners hit us up and was like, oh, no, he's made it really clear that he thinks the line between – uh, communism and uh, fascism is not existent. That in actual interviews, he's like they're basically the same thing. And I'm like, right. okay, no, thank you. Which doesn't make that movie any less funny, but it's it still becomes, hilarious. Uh, it still it still becomes a joke about me more than I realized, and that yeah. kind of bums me out. Because if it's a joke about Stalin, I'm no I'm no tanky here, buddy. Stalin sucked. Fuck you. Right. Right. But if it's a joke about the entire left, I'm a little like, wait a minute here, right. champ. I, I don't know how I feel about that. As a uh, as a as a committed lifelong leftist, I can take uh, I can take the jabs. It's fun. it's true. It's true. Yeah. I mean, the movie's fucking hilarious, and it's I literally think it might be one of Steve Buscemi's greatest performances. Oh yeah, it's unbelievable. Anyways, uh, do you have any other on track, or is that it? That's all. Cool. Yeah. Josh, do you want to go, or do you want me to go? You can go, Liam. I'll go last. I'm very short because. Um, I've had a lot of things going on lately, so I guess I will say my first on track was a couple weeks ago getting to head back to the Philadelphia area to hang out with my man Josh. It uh, was great. We tabled uh, for Cinepunks and for Rough Cut. Uh, we were at our friends at LVAC, hosted another one of their um, film and wrestling events uh, at the Mahoning Drive-In. That was a lot of fun. We got to meet. Uh, some wrestlers who were very friendly to us. So big up to uh, Chris Worthless and some other people. Um, and, and I would say also big up to Orange Cassidy, who is way too famous to be nice to us and was still very nice to us. So thanks, Orange Cassidy, for being cool. Um, and also everyone who came up and let us know that they listened to the show and who bought shirts. And uh, also at Monster, we were at Monster Mania with Rough Cut selling movie shirts. So uh, thanks to everyone who checked out uh, – uh, checked us out and maybe che- are checking out the show because we shoved a flyer into your shirt order. So if that's the case, hey, welcome. We're glad you're here. Um, and so that was on track. But because I've had a lot of things going on, I haven't watched a lot of stuff that isn't related to podcasts. I've been doing a lot of like podcast-specific movie watching, which is why my next on track is a show. And it's one that I know that Josh will um, relate with me on, which is that I have – 
completely binged through and am now caught up with Legendary, the show. And in fact, I'm almost caught up with the Legendary podcast, which is also very good. And I recommend everyone check out because I'm sure anyone who's watched Legendary has thought, man, I don't know how authentic this is to the ballroom experience. Plus, I feel like all these performers have shit to say that they're not getting to say on the show. Well, on the podcast, they get to talk their shit, and it's great. Even though it is the (laughs) official Legendary podcast, no one is forced to say, oh, I like Law, and I like what Law has to say. Oh, no. Oh, no. They will talk their shit, (laughs) and it is the shade being thrown on the podcast is well worth it. Plus, there's a lot of good history there, and you know, a lot of acknowledgement that performing on Legendary is not the same as performing at a ballroom and all that stuff right. so um you know i even knowing how distant the show is from the real thing i still have found the show captivating both seasons and i thank you josh because i was only vaguely interested in checking it out and you sold me like you need to watch it and now i'm like i love it i'm like addicted to it it's the best it's so good yeah. do you watch it dave do you know the show i like it a lot i wish if i have one you know wish for that show it's that i want to see more uh, of the of the house's performance and less yes. shots. I yeah. want to see fewer cutaways to Law yawning. Can I just <laughs> can I just say the editing on the show is atrocious. I want yeah. I want to acknowledge it's that it's so the, hard to watch the, the the dance sequences because yeah. of the editing. I, yeah. I I want to acknowledge that I love the show and I love that a lot of people who have toiled away in, in some level of obscurity are maybe getting deals now. Like what the show has done that's very good is that people like Laomi, people like Deshaun are like producers. Like they're getting real checks. They're right. not getting performer checks. And right. I, I appreciate that. That's great. However, whoever is editing the show is fucked in the head. We are there for the performance. That's what we want to see. That is like my one whack about the show is that like, I don't care. Like if they never show what they really should do is do a inbox. So like you see the performance full screen mm-hmm. and then there's a little box of the judges faces and yes. that would actually be hilarious. Cause then you could see their responses real time instead of seeing a cut here and a cut there. That um, is a very good idea. Yeah. It's just they real- do it in sports. Yeah, exactly. Let's borrow from the jocks and really get the thing at the same time. The, <laughs> yeah. the point here is that I love the show, but there are things I don't love about it. And one of, one of those things is the editing. The other is, of course, that because the show is what it is, it's a big focus on dramatics. And I know that actual ballroom is not just people doing flips. That like That's cool, right. but some of the more um, femme-focused, softer performance things are like not as highlighted as they could be. And that yeah. kind of... You know, it's a drawback in some ways, or at least it could be. Granted, I think a lot of people going to the show, even now, just two seasons in, know what the fuck is up. So I also think, like, it, it, people aren't being surprised anymore. They they are preparing for the thing that the thing is. So I don't <coughs> know. I, that, that's mostly on point for me. As far as um, uh, other things, like, I've watched a lot of things for um podcast so if you're curious my thoughts on those feel free to check out some of those other podcasts <laughs> uh including cinema smorgasbord where we just as i said put out a new episode of jodowski where we got really deep on the holy mountain which as folks know is one of my favorite movies of all time and continues to confound and confuse me which is sort of what i like you know and and i will say is important for our thing today because that movie broke me of my former attitude which is like i'm going to
going to decode this movie. I'm going to decode mm-hmm. what's going on here. And the Holy Mountain is like, you will never. You could spend your life <laughs> studying the tarot, and you will never decode this movie, so just give it up. And so I can go into movies like Tropical Malady or Cemetery of Splendor and not sit there being like, so what exact? what is this? Rep-? You know, I'm, yeah. I don't have my fucking code sheet or whatever. So um, thank you, Jodorowsky, for that lesson, uh, of, above all, in my mind. Uh, that's about it. I will say, um, whack. I echo uh, Dave's whack about the state of the world, our hostility continuing towards people who don't conform to our gender expectations, um, and how fucked all of that is. Um, and I, you know, just another layer. Uh, and I hate to do this because the Republicans are so evil that we all want to be united against them. I just need a lot of our Democrat friends to step up. And just be a little more engaged with what's happening in the world. Stop maybe... acting like soft Republicans. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, also, stop giving money to apartheid regimes. I'll just say yep. that out loud. You know, whatever. <laughs> I don't care. You guys can come for me in the comments or something. Uh, but that's it. That's that's all I got. Josh, uh, you are you are a man about town. I know you've been out in the world. You've been to a movie theater, which I haven't gotten to do yet. I'm sure you have many mm. wax and on tracks. So uh, I'm going to begin with on track because I'm a positive gentleman. Of course. And uh, I will say that I went to my first screener uh, since the beginning of pandemic this past past Monday. Yes. And I saw a movie called In the Heights. Now, here's the thing about that. I love musicals. I, in no uncertain terms, have been raised on Rodgers and Hammerstein musicals, and I love every single one of them. Everything from Brigadoon to the Fantastics, I love all of that shit. And uh, I have never seen Hamilton. So <laughs> I love that as well, uh, by the way. Yeah, dude. And it's not like I, I've been avoiding it. It's just I haven't seen it. You know what I'm saying? Like, dude, that's just what it is. Sorry, dog. But um, the person that I went to go see this movie with has seen Hamilton and has seen it twice on Broadway. So he was like, I don't know, man. This movie's just like Hamilton. I'm like, it takes place in a place like a bodega, though which I'm pretty sure there's no bodegas in Hamilton, though I've never seen it. So I, you know, you don't have to quote me on this. I'm no expert, um, but I'm going to say you're probably right. This movie is, I mean, I've read a lot of like people being upset about it because they're like, that's not what it's like in Washington Heights. It's completely inauthentic. There's nobody dancing in the streets there. Um, yeah, it's a musical, goddamn. So there's also no drugs in this movie, nor are there any guns, which we both know. Or all three of us know that that's in Washington Heights, y'all. Sorry. Um, It's so fucking good, though. It's so just, it's one of those musicals that truly does reference everything from the golden age to the current state of musical film. And it's fucking amazing. I loved it so goddamn much. It's like, it's got a two plus hour runtime. And uh, for the most part, that's like a hard thing for me sometimes, especially in like these situations with like a bunch of other movie critics and all these other people who I haven't seen in like a year. You know what I mean? And um, it's like, you know, sometimes it's a bit of a bear. That said, I was wrapped, and all through the third act, I was weeping. It speaks so much to people who are the children of immigrants. It speaks so much to people of a particular socioeconomic strata. It's, uh, and the music is beautiful, and it's a celebration. And that I'm getting choked up top, like, thinking about it right now. I know, it's I know. It's a fucking celebration of, like, this just presence and this obstinate rebellion in being erased it's mm. so good i fucking loved it so goddamn much and um yeah it i don't think it comes out until the 11th but goddamn it is i thought it i found it to be completely lovely 
So that is 100% on track for me. I also saw A Quiet Place 2 in the theater. And um, I did clock the Maria Menounos thing that you guys talked about on that last episode of Linoleum. That just saying, <laughs> that lady is busy. Word. I mean, good for her. You know what I'm saying? But yeah, goddamn newbie. I don't know what the fuck that shit's about, man. <laughs> it's none of my business. None of my business. Um, that said, A Quiet Place 2 I found to be very entertaining. It was fine. I mean, you know. It, it, it was if you like the first one i kind of feel like you'll like this one you know what i mean it's cool and there's a lot of scenes in the movie though where people have to go places there's one particular nexus where all the characters have to go somewhere I'm like y'all guys gotta go somewhere all the damn time really like now now we gotta go somewhere it's like dude just chill there's monsters out there dog <laughs> so um yeah that was i liked it though i thought it was fun me and milani enjoyed ourselves we got popcorn that was cool did and, it um, did it feel less um, pro lifey than the original? It didn't feel like it had that strong of a pro lifey like this is our people. Like it didn't have that feeling to it. Like this desperation of survival. Although it is a desperate situation for sure. It was just one of those movies that was just like ah yeah this is like part two. Killian Murphy's here. I'm pretty stoked. Like it was a. I thought it was fun. I'm I mean, just, it wasn't as dour. I'm not as stoked on that first one as a lot of people, so I'm I don't know if I'm gonna like this, but I, I'm interested. Also, you've totally sold me. I'm I'm not a Hamilton person and I, I don't know what to make of Lynn Manuel Miranda sometimes, but your excitement for In the Heights that has me excited. Like I, I'm stoked to see it now. And before I was just kinda like, Yeah, it's I will see it. I'm sure I'll see it at some point. And now I'm kinda like, Well, if Josh loved it that much, I really need to see it. I mean, here's the thing, Liam. You love a good dance sequence, brother. I fucking love That's it. That's what you love. I know. You goddamn love it. I know. And, uh, you know, if that was enough to sell me on Climax, which I watched because of you, <laughs> I, I offer you this <laughs> reciprocity. <laughs> Climax is a different movie. I will say that. It's a different movie. The but fact that, that said, I got you to like, watch that makes me so happy because it's so not your thing. <laughs> yeah, because I hate Gaspar in a way. I fucking hate that irreversible any of his goddamn movies fuck them i hate them so much that said climax had some dope dance sequences <laughs> um so yeah so that was uh oh yeah also on track i've been watching the boys me and milani been watching the boys because you know you can't be gangster all the time and um yeah that movie that tv show is cool i like it it's funny because uh carl urban is in it and i love carl urban and longtime listeners of the show know that i had the opportunity to interview him one time and from the distance of the elevator to the hotel room where I had to do the interview, the agent was like, whatever you do, don't call him Keith Urban. He hates that. Huh. So for the 12 steps between the elevator and the hotel room in my head, it was like Carl Urban, Keith Urban, Keith Urban, Carl Urban, Carl Urban, Keith Urban. And I couldn't remember who I was talking to. <laughs> so then I just settled on Mr. Urban. <laughs> I love that. I love that. That's how I did that. What's um, it like? <laughs> what's it's it like being married weird, to nicole kidman carl urban <laughs> <laughs> it was fucked up man but that was, he was nice he was anyway that's not the point boys pretty dope uh for whack now you guys have to come with me on a little bit of a journey just because you have to understand a couple things number one i am 43 years old and i've just discovered drugs number two my wife is a drag race super fan as we had discussed um so there's a thing that has happened or it will be happening next weekend wherein uh annually i have a group of friends that think it's really funny to send our one friend's wife away to like a spa day and then we go to their house and eat a lot of magic mushrooms which i haven't done a lot of 
Dave, don't judge me. I haven't had a lot of drugs. And, you know, the, the psilocybin thing, it's cool. I'm enjoying it. It's fun. I'm not on it now. I'm just saying I have plans to do that this Saturday with my homies. That said, we also have tickets to a drive-in drag race on Saturday. But me and my wife are going to go to at the King of Prussia Mall. But also one of my friends in the drug group, are him and his wife are joining us for this drag show. Thus, this comes into question my whole problem with scheduling. Liam will tell you, I'm terrible at it. So bad. But I now will probably go into a drag race high on mushrooms on Saturday. And I'm a little bit nervous about it because it's in the parking lot of a mall. So that's whack. Bad joke. I did the wrong thing. I'm going to admit that fully. And I apologize. So that's what I got. I mean... It could be fun, though, right? I don't know. I don't. As your straight edge friend, I have no insight on this issue whatsoever, other than <laughs> you are bad at scheduling. That is true. Yeah. But maybe, so bad. maybe tripping balls at the drag performance is going to be great. It might be. I don't know. There's like a six hour window between the two. So we're supposed to start at one time, and then the show's not until like later that evening. To which my friend is like, oh, don't worry. They'll pick us up at the house, and then we'll all just go over together. Which, again, seems bad. I don't know. It seems like a poor choice. It seems like a poor choice. Dave, the thing you need to understand is half of Josh's drug stories are mild, embarrassing disasters simply because... (laughs) He, you know, he, he gets really high and then he goes to see Doctor Strange and then he like loses his mind or it was awesome. or he hot boxes all the way to see Dag Nasty. And then he's like <laughs> the one guy, the one guy at the Dag Nasty show who tries to mosh, even though everyone is too old to do that. Yeah. So he's just like the one high guy trying to get people to mosh at Dag Nasty. It's, you know, stories like that are Josh's drug stories. And <laughs> I find them hilarious. But I, I understand you might be setting yourself up for some embarrassment at this drag occasion wait till you're my age and you're like i went to a before the pandemic i saw the the jaw box reunion uh tour love that and i went to this place downtown la and i stood there the whole time thinking oh my back hurts Uh uh (laughs) (laughs) and and it's like I can't go to shows anymore unless there's a comfortable chair. Yep. <laughs> like there's just mm. not my, uh, my life. Uh, what I'm trying to say is my life is over. It's okay. <laughs> it's not over, but you should think about bringing a camp chair with you to sit in between. <laughs> like you could stand during the band if you're sitting yeah. between bands. Like and I a think su- that that... a sunbrella as well for my head. <laughs> yeah. Famously, even though a... I'm, I'm inside, but I'll still use that. Yeah. <laughs> Famously, there's a gentleman in the Philadelphia scene who is older, who is not, from what we can tell, a gentleman like yourself who grew up going to shows, but discovered them as a full adult. And he brings a chair. He brings a chair. He sits in a chair. And then he has a step stool that he stands on in the back of the crowd so he can see the band, but still be in the back. And That's everyone, a lot whenever, of carrying around. Whenever yeah. he's there, everyone goes, who invited the cop? And we have to explain, <laughs> he's not a cop. He's just an old man who likes this stuff, and we don't know why. Right. Yes. Yeah. That's yeah. Story, oh, and man. I've got the I've got the cop mustache too, so it's like you would <laughs> you would think that that was probably who I was, I guess, if I were there more often. All right. Is that Josh, was that it for you? Yep, that's all I got. All right. So, friends, we're going to take a brief break. We're going to hear a cool song chosen by Dave. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about two Thai films. Uh 
directed by and I'm I'm following Dave's example here and I'm going to actually do this thing. Directed by uh, Apichatpong Wirasethkul. Uh, I I I'm not even near as good as you, Dave. You I, gave I, it a try. Directed by our good. directed by our man Joe, and those are uh, Tropical <laughs> Malady and Cemetery of Splendor. We will be right back. Josh, we got to do this ad. We got to come up with something. What do we want people to know about Cinepunks? I don't know, man. I feel like they should know everything about Cinepunks. <sighs> All right. 
We're underachieving, overachievers convinced that we know a thing or two about movies. Romance and adventure by the light of the silver screen. Is non-judgmental movie criticism a thing? Not really, but we love you anyway. We love cinema, whether it's high art or low trash. Cinepunks, we're elitists, but only about real nerd shit. Liam and Josh, we have two microphones and the truth. And we're back. So we are here with our friend from Linoleum Night, Mr. Dave White. And we are going to be discussing two movies by Apichapong Wiresta Thakun. So uh, good. You, that was really good, Josh. Thank you. I, I wanted to say it just to show off. As the only Asian on the on the show right now. <laughs> that's fair. Yeah, no, that's, how, that's how you say that, son. <laughs> um, yeah, we're not going to talk about Uncle Boonmi, who can recall his past lives. Although Liam and I thought that's one of the movies that we were watching. And last night, we were like, wait a minute. We're not watching Uncle Boonmi for this episode tomorrow morning. <laughs> and lo and behold, at 10 o'clock last night, we both had to watch Tropical Malady. Yeah. And uh, we already had seen Cemetery of Splendor earlier this week. So those are the two movies we'll be discussing today. Dave, I want to start just with a, you know, you, uh, I think, very graciously uh, uh, led us down this path. And I wanted to know why these movies, why were these things you wanted to talk about, what your sort of history is with this particular director, uh, just as sort of an introduction on both like a why these movies and also on a personal level, like why for you these movies? Uh, well, you know, I've been a lifelong, uh, uh, you know, cinema person, and sure. I uh, have, from an early age, I sought out uh, films from other countries. Um, I remember being, I don't know, 14, 15, uh, maybe 16, whatever, uh, and my family got HBO. It was uh, very exciting. So cool. It was the early 80s. And I watched my first subtitled film on HBO because we lived in a very small town in New Mexico. And so those films didn't come to our little small town in New Mexico. Um, so the, uh, the, I was immediately hooked on that because they were films like that from, from not the United States were a window into the lives of people uh, that I didn't know, and and of course, you wait, know, Dave. Dave, yes. what was the movie? What was the movie? Uh, it was called Get Out Your Handkerchiefs, and it was French. And and most of the foreign language films that that are, uh, or rather, most of the non English uh, language films that are uh, distributed in the United States are you know Northern European. They're they're French. They're German. Um, you know, they're Dutch. You know, places like that. And so it was even longer. Uh, stretch of time until I finally arrived in a city that had real art house cinemas that I could see, you know, films from Latin American countries, uh, you know, films from Asian countries. And so that was the next, you know, step for me in terms of really exploring world cinema. Uh, and that is exactly the opposite of how I came to Tropical Malady uh, when it came out <laughs> in 2004, I think, um, 2005. Uh, I approached it and was it was you know uh, sold to me as a queer film from a queer director, and sure. that is exactly the case. Uh, Mr. Wirasatakun is uh, queer, and this story is a 
love story, and I'm putting that in quotes, I guess, uh, between two young men. Uh, one is a soldier, and one is a uh, a young man from a small village who works in an ice factory. And I, you know, went to see it and came out of it thinking, "Holy fucking shit! I have never seen a queer themed film like this, where the 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 otherworldliness of it." Uh, was as primary as the 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 romance, and so um, I was immediately taken with this filmmaker and couldn't wait to see more. Uh, and then eventually, I saw Syndromes in a Century, which is the most autobiographical film uh, that he's made because it's about uh, doctors. Both of his parents were doctors in Bangkok, and um, the and then you know Uncle Boonmi and so on. Uh, so the more I became involved with, uh, his films, the more in love with them I became because, Mm. you know, my experience, you know, as a person in North America, uh, is not the same as the experience, the life experience of someone who lives in Thailand and getting back to what I said earlier, I rely on movies to teach me stuff to show me things to help me understand other people other cultures uh that i'm not a part of um so that is uh that's my relationship with with this director my relationship with this film is that it's one of the best uh queer films uh and films of the the 21st century i think I would agree, but we'll we'll dive into that again in a second here. Josh, I know uh, you had seen Uncle Boon Me before we watched it for this by mistake. Uh, did you see any of this uh, director's other films before we watched these for the podcast? No, I just, uh, Uncle Boon Me is the only one. And the only reason we saw it, or I saw it, is because uh, I think we were together when we saw it, weren't we, Liam? It was a film society thing. Yeah, we saw it at part film of the Fest. Philly Film yeah. Society yeah, with our, with our passes for the Film Fest. Yeah, and uh, I th- yeah, I think that you said it perfectly, Dave. That the otherworldliness is just as primary as the main love story in the movie. It's, I mean, but well, that's for um, for uh, for tropical malady. But man, these movies are great. I fucking loved all three of these movies. There's so just saying. the 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 yes, we we saw Uncle Boon Me together. I watched it again. Um, a few times. I think I bought it on DVD or Blu-ray. I might even have the Blu-ray. I'm not sure. I watched it a while, and in fact, uh, when it came out, that I think was one of the years, or maybe it was the year after, I went to Fantastic Fest back before um, we realized how problematic that was. And uh, at Fantastic Fest, Mondo had a drawer of posters that were no longer available online, but they had extras of. And there was this lone... Uncle Boon Me poster in there, and I remember thinking, "You guys did a poster for Uncle Boon Me, okay?" And I, you know, I knew that this was not one that a lot of people were going to go for, but I was like, "I'm going to get this poster," so I, I have it. I haven't framed it yet, um, but 
the thing that stuck out to me about that film, and now I also find incredible about the two films we're talking about today, uh, is interesting because one of the things I thought about having you on, Dave, was uh, our shared uh, post-evangelicalness, that that was, uh, (laughs) although your experience was different than mine because you were brought up, and for me it was like a decision I made later, there was something that still has stuck with me, uh, which is if... One of the things I th- I learned I would say I learned even though it's more of an opinion but I learned it in seminary which is like if things happen that one would associate with being otherworldly in some way or not whatever that they're not what we use in the West we use the term supernatural right well that doesn't make any sense right because for the people who wrote these texts in any case. This was natural, actually, because this is what the world was like. This, so this is what happens. And what I find amazing about these films is these this barrier is broken oftentimes between um, the fantastical and the extremely realistic, the very basic naturalistic functions of everyday life are when people come in. And in Uncle Boon Me, I think famously, it's the dinner that becomes host both to a deceased wife and to a son who's become a, a magical monkey. And that's yeah. like... That's just the dinner table. They're having this conversation, <laughs> yep. and it's very basic. And for me, this is why when I relate to people and my attitude, uh, in a very real way, art and politics have become the ground of faith for me. And for people who are Orthodox Christians or other religions, they would say, well, you've given up on your faith. And for me, it's like, well, if any of these things matter, they are made manifest in the lives of people. And I find them the most meaningful, any of these ideas in power and art, you know, our creativity and how we treat people, which is really the part of what I mean by politics, not like, you know, uh, partisan politics, but like how we use power and how people get resources or don't get resources. And so like, for me, as much as I am very much a materialist now, as opposed to a supernaturalist, I I don't think that actually makes me less faithful. I, I think I'm as faithful now in many ways. Uh, as and, and, and when I feel unfaithful, it's when I'm being mean or unkind or short-sighted. Like, when I'm being a bad person. You know, when I'm actually treating people in a way that isn't good. That's when I feel unfaithful, not when I'm yes. like... Yeah, maybe when I'm dead, I'm dead. Whatever. Who gives a fuck? You know, like, you know, he's never coming back. I don't care. You know what I mean? Like, famously, (laughs) there's a there's a Gaza record that's like, you know, very, very, you know, uh, anti-religion. It's called He is Never Coming Back. And I remember seeing that title and going, I don't know that I give a fuck. Like, it doesn't matter to me. I don't really need him to come back. Actually, I'm fine. So like in that sense. And again, not that that's necessarily the goal. But what I think that does for this director in a real way is um, uh, uh, open us to a world and to a culture and I wouldn't I don't want to make the case that these films are made for a western audience but I do think they are particularly challenging to a western audience who might assume a film this natural and realistic won't have a magical monkey or won't have um, a woman occupied by a comatose soldier leading us through you know kingdoms or won't have um, the 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 audacity to switch to this narrative, this this folk story, to explore passion and sexuality, and honestly, uh, the destructive nature of love and all of that. So, there's just something about his decisions to do that that I find not just uh, enchanting, but really affirming of who I feel like I am as a person. Here's the other thing that 
became apparent to me after watching all three of these movies. It's that uh, Mr. Wrasithakun, as a person who is, um, these three films took place where he, well, I mean, I know that um, that, um, Cemetery of Splendor was where he grew up. Yeah. In Isan or whatever. Like, I forget the, it's, um, Isan was the name, right? Is that that correct? Yeah. Isan, yeah. yeah. And here's the thing, right? Like, it's easy to show a fish out of water story where everything's weird. Like, think about Bill Murray in the Sofia Coppola movie. uh, What was the one? Lost in Translation. Yeah. Like, okay. Yeah, I get it. He's taller than all the Asian people there. Oh, wow. It's weird. But uh, in this movie, I think the skillful act is showing how ethereal these places that are so familiar to the director. Yes. And finding that key of wonder in something so familiar that's hard that's a difficult task to show um disconnect and to show um whimsy in a place that is so concretely where you were and i think that that's the thing that came to me in all three of these movies that there is like you know sitting around the dinner table when you know your dead um mother returns in a chair like that shit is wild to show and to have it be so matter of fact and so accepting of the, like for the viewer to just be like, okay, that's just what's happening. That is an amazing feat. I think for any director and he pulls it off with, with great um, delicacy in all of these movies where it's almost like a dream. It's wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Yeah. Uh, so let's let's dig in on our first movie, Tropical Malady, which was completely new to me and Josh. Um, uh, Josh, for those uh, courageous listeners who are listening who haven't watched it, they want to hear us talk about it before they watch it. Could you just give people a brief synopsis about like what is it about, like what happens in the movie? Well, the movie takes place in two parts. The first part is um, the affectations between a soldier and a and a young man who is from like a farming village. He, he works in an ice, uh, in an ice factory. And it's just kind of like the amorous, like uh, connections that they're making as they live through life. Right. It has a very matter of fact way of like presenting these things. There are a lot of like moments in this first half of the movie that are um, just almost slice of life moments. Yeah. Wouldn't you guys agree? Yes. Yeah. It's, it's shot in a in a very naturalistic almost documentary like way um and although occasionally they are talking about uh stuff that we might think of as supernatural in fact if you were going back again to see it watch it again so many years later after having seen uncle boonby um uh, the, the the ice factory, uh, the man who works in the ice factory, he says, remember when I told you about my uncle who could recall his past lives? Oh, <laughs> I yeah. noticed that, yeah. And I and I thought, oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, yeah. That was a line that just sort of washed over me when I first saw it so many years ago. And then seeing it again, thinking, holy shit, these stories are connected. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, that 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 is the first half is very much uh, it's fairly straightforward. They 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 they're developing this very sort of innocent tentative romance, uh holding hands, going to see a movie together. Uh they go uh into an underground temple where they uh they they see a a, a Buddhist icon. It's got like, you know, 
Christmas lights and Christmas music <laughs> playing on it. Um, they take a dog to the vet. All these very everyday sort of things uh, are happening to them. And uh, the soldier's name is Kang, and the ice factory, uh, the young man who works in the ice factory, his name is Tong. And then at the end of that first half, Tong walks into the forest and disappears. I Okay, so am I right that that is supposed to be like... My, so my experience of that, which is not to say this is the narrative intention, but as I'm watching it, I felt emotionally crushed by that moment. Is that... Okay. Okay. Good. Because that's as that was hap- as that was happening. I'm like, am I missing something here? Because I kind of want to start crying. Like I'm very much like. Un- and then as they're just driving away, I thought because again, I didn't read anything about this going in. I wanted to be really like yeah. Yeah. affected by what it was doing. And then when we switched to the narr- to the second narrative, which second we'll describe path. in a second, yeah. um, I just was like, why? What? No, where did he go? What's happening? <laughs> Why did he leave? It, it was very, I was very um, uh, devastated by that moment. Yeah. And then that second part starts with a, t- a new title and new credits. Yeah. And, and a whole different style of filmmaking that envelops you in this, uh, uh, you know, as, as, we, as we mentioned earlier, this, you know, magical uh, folklore tale. Same it's actors. It's also like it turns into a horror movie at the middle. Almost, yeah. Just about. It turns into like Predator. Yeah, yeah. it's fucked up, man. <laughs> I mean, it's great. It's awesome. It's such a cool juxtaposition and it's such a cool like journey. You know yeah. what I mean? But man, so like we end our beautiful love story with this now second story of there's a tiger that was half human when it was killed by the soldier. And then it just, whoa, it, it switches so hard. And it's terrifying to me. And in this second half, the jungle is the character, right? Like, this is the part where, like, you recognize that the um, the abyss of, uh, of just the uncertainty and just the, the pressures of society and everything are personified by this jungle of ambiguity and darkness. And, I mean, like, even though some parts of the second half are shot during the day, it is so bleak. It's so dark come that second half. And, um, yeah. And uh, what's fascinating is that the same actors are playing the new yeah. characters. Right. The, the, the man who played uh, Kang the soldier, his character is now named uh, Ekarat. And he's still a soldier, but he's in the jungle. He's in the forest. He's investigating the disappearance and mutilation of cows. Mm-hmm. And the actor who played Tong is now... Uh, a, a shaman who has transformed into a tiger and you are for a while left with the question of, well, are they the same guys and are they not? And you don't always know until for me, the end when I realized, yeah. you know, what I felt was coming really was what the film was about. Um, there's a quote from Mr. Wirasethakone Uh, where he talks about the film. And he says, even though the story is presented in a linear structure, Tropical Malady has two distinct stories that represent two very different worlds. However, these two territories are linked by characters that the audience can interpret as the same or not. What's essential are the memories. Memories from the first part validate the second part, just as the second part validates the first. 
neither exists wholly without the other. Mm-hmm. Insane. The the thing that I found myself thinking about, and I, again, I don't want to over intellectualize this because I think at a basic level, both of these stories make you feel something, and you should take that feeling more seriously than any sort of like questions about structure or whatever. But I did find yes. myself thinking, in what ways does the allegorical nature of the second half allow us to more directly see or think about? things than the first half is even able to in some ways or or maybe there's something about the indirectness of that kind of storytelling that allows us to get at things that are hard or uh, sensitive or painful or, or however we want to conceive of that what we learn really during the second half is how closely connected not only these two new characters are to the two earlier characters i mean not simply because they're played by the same actors but how connected the soldier is to the tiger uh in the second half the soldier describes having a strange feeling in his heart and after he does after he says this a monkey appears in a tree and the monkey begins speaking to the soldier and i wrote down every bit of this dialogue because it felt so important to me. What the monkey says to the soldier is, the tiger trails you like a shadow. His spirit is starving and lonely. You are his prey and his companion. Yeah. He, can, he can smell you, and soon you will feel the same. Kill him to free him from the ghost world, or let him devour you and enter his world. It, it, it's so it, brutal. That could be a that could be a poem about love and desire. Like that could just be its own piece of art. Just the, they, what the, yeah. What the monk? By the way, what the talking monkey says in the movie yeah. <laughs> could be its own like roomy poem about desire and destruction. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah, yeah. And I don't want to give away how this film ends because I think that's really, uh, it's a really beautiful ending for me. But the final. The final bit of narration uh, from the film, for me, pulls everything together. As you were saying earlier, there is no difference between the natural world and what we would consider the supernatural world here. It is all dependent on each other, and it's all existing together at the same time. Um, And uh, for me, the final bit of narration and the final scenes are are this, this, this... this culmination of the romance in the first half and the fear of love and the fear of connection in the second half. Um, it's thrilling to me, and I, I, I cannot recommend uh, this film highly enough, not just for you know, uh, viewers who you know, have never seen a Thai film or a film from this director, but uh, you know, particularly queer audiences who have lived their entire lives with the idea told to them by uh, others who dislike them that there is something inherently destructive about you. Um, and I really identified and appreciated uh, that in this film. Josh, so you, you've already reflected a bunch, but do you have any other thoughts about 
you know, the narrative structure about the ways that this explores kind of like passion and love or just, you know, this is like me, you were new to this. This is your first time watch. What were you sort of left thinking about afterwards? Oh, it's funny. The one sequence in the first half of the movie, when they go to the movie theater and they're watching the trailer for that other time movie. Yeah. And then they all have to stand because the national anthem is being played. (laughs) Yes. But it's quiet. That whole sequence I found to be completely stirring. Yeah. And it was very like it it was so affecting that in the face of this like this pure love, there's still this like nationalist incentive that you have to follow in a movie theater. It's like, what the fuck is all this? And it was one of those things that when I saw it, I had a very visceral reaction to it. I mean it's like it it is very telling that we've watched three movies like I'm Dave, I'm sure you've watched more. But for me and Josh, we've watched three movies of this director. All three have been haunted by t- the Thailand's military nature, oh, yeah. right? Like, uh-huh. you know, the the part in Uncle Boon Me where he's straight up like, I've probably killed too many communists. The, yeah. the flashes I was having to the look of silence or to, yeah. you know, other films exploring the bloody history of this region in general, not just Thailand, obviously, uh, but a lot of these countries where there were these pogroms against communists, Muslims, whoever it was. I was, you know, and let alone this idea in some, oh, we'll get to Cemetery of Splendor, but the image of these sleeping soldiers and what that's about, you know, that, that, that yeah. each of these movies, you know, this film could be viewed as such a personal story, mm-hmm. but the fact that there is this political insertion of the question of the military yes. and of the kingdom is very, I think, poignant in a way. You know, in most of his films, uh, the the presence of the military is is very heavy, um, and the uh, dialogue referring back to you know historical trauma, wars with other countries, civil wars, authoritarian regimes, you know, uh, uh, kingdoms that have been, you know, decimated. The history uh, uh, is, is, is repeated and, 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 and acted out again uh, in the lives of so many uh, of the characters and, you know, uh, uh, incidents in, 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 in his films. I, so good. Yeah, I'm. I'm so glad, Dave, that you chose this movie because I um I, I yeah I probably would have gotten there eventually, but I had not yet made time, and it was a revelation. And it, it's a movie I had to break up because, as people know, I am a uh, I am a father of a young child who's in the midst of nighttime training, and so I'm <laughs> I'm dealing with a lot of sleep deprivation. So right after the first half ends and the second half began, my brain started to give out. So I had to like go to sleep and wake up and finish it this morning really early. Like I, I love that that happened. Uh, I love that that happened for you because uh, uh, he has spoken in the past about how he doesn't mind if people fall asleep in his films. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and and I sometimes feel like he's doing it intentionally because the rhythms of his films are so slow-paced yeah. and so quiet. And you, his sound design from film to film relies so much on sounds of the natural world. Um, and... It's like it's like it's like a, it's like a calm app. You know, you are you are physically forced to slow down to watch his films, and they have this physical power 
uh, I, I've joked about this on Linoleum Knife before. I said, uh, his movies slow down my heart rate. And I, yes. and I want to be in them as often as I can because I want that feeling. Um, that's, and, and I, I don't know who else feels that way, but I feel that way. <laughs> I love that. And I think that's true. It was one of the, one of the first things I realized when I first saw uncle boom me is like, this movie is forcing me to adjust to its rhythm and pace. I don't yeah. yeah to its pace. And it's not, I don't get a say, you know, either I'm in or I'm entirely out. And I was, you know, uh, almost felt forced like I got to be in I got to be a part of what's happening here and I felt similarly about this movie that um you know uh, straight up there are going to be listeners who this is not your vibe you won't be able to get on board you're not going to be able to keep with it like I I I don't want to shame anyone for whom sleep is what happens to them when they're watching this these movies Mm, but not at all yeah but uh for me though I did eventually have to uh, uh, take a second go because of sleep deprivation, um, (laughs) I find his imagery so enchanting. Both, like, this is a movie where I can say the documentary-style scenes from the Ice Factory were almost as enchanting to me as the Tree of Light during the the sequence where there's the cow ghost. Guys, for those of you who haven't watched this yet, there is a cow ghost. (laughs) We see the ghost of a cow, and we see a Tree of Light. And this is not a high special effects film. This is not a CGI thing. This is very much a low-budget film, and that is one of the most arresting images I've seen in a movie Mm. probably this year. You know, like, that just was I stopped I literally paused it and just like looked at it for a while um and that's that's how this goes like even as these films are done in a very naturalistic style he's not going for camera trick magic here uh there are still images and sequences that will stick with I think anyone even those for whom they might find the overall experience a little slow or a little hard to maybe a bit a little bit impenetrable I still think a lot of what's on screen will stick with you. I think that one well, of Well the... that's the thing also. Sorry. Oh yeah. Sorry. Oh, go ahead. Uh, well that Mr. uh Asathakun is a, a visual artist first. That a lot of the well just from what I've read um doing research for this episode he spoke a lot about how um he is a. He still thinks of his directorial career as a career, but he also still does like installations that melt film and still image, and that's like a main part of his art. Oh wow! So awesome. that a lot of his images would be so striking, like that illuminated tree. It's like you know, it, it shows the stripe of like he is a visual artist first, and it's beautiful. Yeah, it really is. And hey, I what think what were you going to say? Go ahead. Well, what you were, I was going to refer to what you had just said about um, you know, people who can't get into this. It's I I, I want to say this, if you can't get into this, it's not your fault because right. we we have as a culture in the United States, we have given our you know, uh our 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 lives over to a a corporate film aesthetic that prioritizes very linear storytelling, very, um, you know, uh, structural, structural, uh, practices that pay off everything, um, that leave Mm -hmm. no room for confusion, that never let the action, uh, slow down, that 
refuse to uh, allow for silence, um, that that equates slow moving with boring, and what you what you experience when you watch uh, a Bishop on Where Sothergoon's films is the direct opposite of all of that, and I think that if you if you go to his films and you sit through let's say let's say you start with uncle boon me because a lot of people start with uncle boon me um if you sit through uncle boon me and you come out of it thinking that was slow that was boring i didn't get it what happened why did that happen what did that mean what did this other thing mean you know why is there a catfish having sex with a woman like what what is going on in this film give yourself a minute a week, a month, a year. <laughs> Go back and watch it again. The first time, why don't you just let it wash over you and not worry about mm-hmm. trying to figure it out? Because we're conditioned to trying to figuring things out. Um, I'm a big, I'm a big uh, going to galleries and museums person, and when I take friends who are less into it than I am, one of the th- one of the complaints I often hear is, I don't get this. This doesn't make any sense to me. And and my answer is always, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> uh, sometimes I don't get it either. I'll go back and look at it again someday. And maybe I'll get it then. Maybe I'll never get it. It doesn't matter if I get it or not. I want to know what this person has to say. I want to know what they are trying to communicate if I don't ever figure it out, then at least I experienced it and I know that it's out there and I know that it has something to offer me. I might just not be there yet. Um, and so, and here's the, here's a further thing. Uh, I'm not the boss of this. I don't know everything about this man's films. I don't understand everything about this man's films. I'm not Thai. <laughs> right, right. I, I, I've, I've, I'm not Buddhist. I don't know what I don't know. And so as I age and maybe learn more and study more uh, and, and see more and experience more, I'll come back to these films and have a whole different new understanding of them. And that will be great because I'll be 85 and still alive, hopefully. And, <laughs> and, I'll, and I'll be able to say, you know what? I first saw this movie when I was 30 and that was 50 years ago. And I was such an idiot <laughs> that I thought it was about this one thing, but it's now to me about something else. That's a cool way to have a life, right? <laughs> so yeah, that's a cool way to make art. Man. If you, if you don't, if you, if you were listening to this podcast and you've never seen these films and you watch one and you're like, fuck those guys for trying to make me watch these movies. <laughs> They probably say that a lot, though. If that's if, if that's lot, your stance, yeah. you've already gotten mad at us quite a um, few times. I I just wanna I just wanna say, keep going, keep keep right. looking at stuff, right. keep and 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 intentionally force yourself into territory that you don't understand. I think that so I, I've uh, I don't retain a lot of things. Uh, per se that I learned in seminary but there's a there's a thing that I developed there that I still use in film stuff all the time which I I say and it's become even more nuanced now which is the Cosby sweater problem so 
when I first developed this theory, this was before all the recent Cosby developments. So when I said to someone, you know, if you say the word Cosby sweater, if you say the phrase Cosby sweater to someone, it has a certain meaning, and that meaning will be lost over time. I can yep. now make that even more nuanced. So now when I say Cosby sweater, it means something different than a decade ago when I first had this idea. Yep. Um, and so I think someone's anxiety sometimes with these movies is the Cosby sweater problem, that what does the tiger mean in Thai culture, and will that deepen my understanding what is with the monkeys in uncle boon me with the red eyes what is what is actually going on there is there a way is there a reference i'm not getting that might deepen my understanding and i'm not saying there isn't a cosby sweater problem there can be and especially if instead of experiencing art you're trying to do what people do when they read the bible which is make it true and the issue is there's probably a lot of things in any ancient text that is a cosby sweater problem you don't get the reference and that's why people stop study ancient languages and look for references and try to get it and try to be like, oh, this is a joke and we didn't know it was a joke or this is a reference to this politician and we didn't get it and now we do. So I think if you are looking for that, for that kernel of truth, that becomes a very relevant issue. But when you're experiencing art, I want to suggest to everyone that while the Cosby sweater thing might help, it might make it more fun for you, that's not the main issue. You can experience art without knowing all of the references. And that doesn't mean that you should then be like, well, I, my experience is this of this piece of art and my perspective then is the only perspective. That's, not, that's obviously not the point either. But you need to accept that there are going to be things referenced not just in a, a piece of art that feels very far from you, which maybe is your experience or maybe not. Maybe you're one of our Thai listeners and you very much connect to this, but there might be pieces of art that you feel very separate from. It's probably also true of art that you think you understand, art that feels very familiar, art that feels like part of your growing up. There are probably references in there you're not picking up because it was made by people and people are drawing from their lives. And chances are there's something there that like, is it resonating for you? And that doesn't make it a bad piece of art or make you a bad viewer. It's just the reality of things being created. And I don't think that we need to have mastery over something for it to affect us. And that is like the thing that it took me forever to learn because I wanted to have mastery over everything. I That was like my vibe. I, did, I had no idea as a young, youngish, like 20 something brown boy who's trying to like look for my dignity in a white supremacist world that I had colonizer tendencies, but I fucking did. And one of my colonizer tendencies was that everything that I understood was better and everything I didn't understand was worse. And that is not real. And in fact, when a piece of art confuses and confounds you and demands for you to like change to in order to relate to it that's actually makes that art very great and very powerful and not something to be tossed aside in in, in my opinion that is the perfect segue to cemetery of splendor yes, because yes. The, the 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 main actress in cemetery of splendor her name is jinjira Pongpas, and she's in a lot of where is Kun's films she is um, and in the film, in, in in Cemetery of Splendor, she is married to a an American white man who was a former soldier. And at one point, they're at a shrine together, and she's trying to explain something to him, and he doesn't get it. And she says, "You're a foreigner. You'll you won't get it, honey." <laughs> <laughs> and she says it very tenderly, but very matter of factly. And he's like, uh, uh, "Yeah, I guess, I guess you're right," you know. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, he then pays respect, which is, I thought, like, because I was kind of, like, not taking this dude too seriously. And then yeah. when he does it, I'm like, well, at least he's willing to, like, 
participate even if he has no idea what's happening. That oh, already yeah. puts him above most Americans. He's devoted to her. Um, right, exactly. And he's he's there for the long haul. He's not, you know, just hanging out in Thailand. Yeah. Dave, for those of uh, our listeners who haven't checked out Summer Day of Splendor yet, do you want to explain briefly like what, what it's about? I would love to. So there is uh, a makeshift hospital located in a former elementary school. In this makeshift hospital, there are soldiers, uh, a dozen, right? They have a mysterious uh, sleeping sickness. They are kind of comatose, kind of not. They're just asleep and they can't wake up. So this clinic in the former school uh, becomes a space for volunteers and nurses uh, to tend to the soldiers, you know, changing the tubes and stuff and rubbing, you know, ointments on them and whatever. Uh, one of them, uh, her name is Jen, played by uh, the woman I just mentioned, uh, Jen Jirapong Pass. She watches over a soldier whose name is Eat. Uh, he is played by the actor who played the soldier Kang in Tropical Malady. He has no visitors. Uh, and so she sort of takes him on as her, uh, the one soldier that she's really tending to. Meanwhile, uh, a young woman uh, who is also a volunteer in the space is a psychic. And she uses her psychic powers to communicate with the soldiers, to speak to the soldiers' loved ones, and to explain, you know, what's going on in the soldiers' minds while they sleep. As the film goes on, doctors come along and they sort of explore these new ways to uh, provide therapy for the soldiers. And the most striking visual of the film uh, involves these tubes of light that change colors over the course of the night. And they're, uh, they're like CPAP machines that are also light therapy. Um, as this goes on, uh, Jen is reading from a book, a notebook that uh, Eat has by his bedside. Only the, bo the book is filled with sort of uh, seeming non sequiturs, things that don't quite make sense to her, sketches. Uh, in fact, there is a sketch of a, of a, of a formless amoeba-like creature in the book that we actually see manifest later in the film, floating in the sky. Um, there also seems to be a connection between the soldier's sleeping sickness and the fact that the school that is now a clinic is built on an ancient royal cemetery that is now being excavated by an, a cable optic fiber company <laughs> That will then transform it even further into something entirely new. It will no longer be a clinic. The film is mostly about Jen and her relationship to it and how their consciousness, <laughs> that word, their, their separate consciousnesses are becoming one. And that's kind of what it's about. Kind of. I also thought it was a lot hornier than... Um... The other one. Oh yeah. <laughs> and, uh, oh yeah. And Tropic of uh, oh, yeah. Tropical Mountain. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yes. yeah. There's a lot more. Uh, 
there's a lot more phallus reference and actual boners in this one than the there other. There is one. one actual boner in this movie. That is correct. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, saying, it man. actually Just has saying. it actually has a line. I've touched too many boners in, or too many pieces <laughs> in my time. Yeah. Jen, Jen has lived. She says, "I've touched way too many penises in my life. Like I'm not going to be the one to touch that sleeping soldier's erection." Um, and then later, uh, she's at a seminar host for, for like a face cream, like a skin skin lightening yeah. cream is what it felt like they were selling to me. Um, and she takes the cream as a gift and she, she opens it and she says, it smells like cum. She does so, say that. Yeah. Out loud. Into the world. Yep. That happens in the movie. I read it. So this, this, this character has, has, has been through life. And I think that's part of her, her, uh, her charm and her beauty. She's very matter of fact. And at the same time, she's very open to the idea of another world that she wants to enter. Man. Yeah. Wow. This I mean, this was a movie, man. Yeah, this was a lot. It's an unbelievable, it's seriously an unbelievable film. And um, there are aspects of tropical malady that I think I appreciated more but there's so much more going on in Cemetery of Splendor that yeah. I very much feel like it's the work of a more mature filmmaker in so many ways. Yeah. But it's also more challenging, and it and it really confounds for me even more any sense I have of like if I just find the right key here, I'm going to decode all the secret meanings. It's like, yeah. oh man, yeah. uh, I don't know, I don't know about this. <laughs> yeah, don't bother trying. It's also just, a lot more living it. politically. It's a lot more politically overt than the other one. I Absolutely, think. it is. In that, yes. um, so the sleeping sickness of the soldiers is um, attributed to the fact that they are in service to these dead kings in their dream world, and that the dead kings are using them in um, like in a uh, otherworldly war. Was I correct in understanding that? I thought that's what I got, but I yeah. could be wrong. Tell them, tell them <laughs> how we find were... out that information. Ah, <laughs> oh, because she gets visited by these dead princesses. Yeah. That were Laotian. Oh yes. my goodness. What a movie. It is fucked up, man. It was one of those things where I was watching it and I could only sit there with my mouth open all the way to the scene where, where our girl is sitting there with her eyes as open as she can. Uh-huh. There's a scene. Oh my God. There's a, Jen is sitting eating lunch and the two two young women uh, uh, arrive and sit down with her. And we have just witnessed Jen go to a shrine where there are two mannequins that are meant to represent these two Laotian princesses. And the, they, the two young women come and sit down with her at lunch and they say, uh, we are the princesses from the shrine. Yeah. And, <laughs> and she's cool with it. Like, and she's yeah, she's cool. like, really? Wow, that's great. And then they say, <laughs> oh, we're dead too, by the way. Yeah. Um, and then they start eating her fruit and she's just staring at them flabbergasted. <laughs> They're... Uh. I don't want to. I don't want people to miss the the moments of of legitimate sort of low key comedy that's going on here too. When Jen is reacting to this or that, you know, uh, situation that's taking place in the clinic and on the grounds of the of the cemetery. Man, it's so brutal. It's, it's so intense. In doing some research about the film, it, you know, there are a number of folks who felt like and I wanted to get y'all's read on this that this was 
a very clearly political movie more than his other films that the the metaphor of the soldiers the sleeping soldiers being enlisted in service of the king the kings the dead kings and uh, that all this was sort of related to a populace who maybe was um, not as uh, as demanding of uh, the kingdom as the director thinks they should be or something along those lines what, what do y'all yeah. think about that I, I agree with you. I, I it, this does have because even though like I've said earlier, I don't know the political uh, you know life of Thailand as well as you know I could if I lived there. Um, but absolutely, this is a film about the the consequences of constant militarism and mm. what will become of a population that you know, of people who are always in the service to uh, people who do not care about them. Yeah, absolutely. I, Dave, I'm actually really glad that you were here. Like we probably might've covered this um, on our own at some point. I, I, I hate to lean on you too much, but there, there's a lot here. I, I wanted to get you guys read, the soldiers, right? They're just given CPAP machines with nice lights, right? Like those aren't, are those actual, like, the, is there like a sci-fi element to what's happening with these machines? I, I don't know. And at a certain point, those light schemes make their way out into the world, right? Like they he's do. filming, yes. whoa, what's happening there, guys? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Um, so it's brutal. everything, everything comes together uh, with those light machines because you're right. Not only are they uh, superimposed on shots of Jen and the soldier coming down a cinema escalator, um, mm-hmm. but the lights do seem to be shifting and illuminating the world outside of the of the uh, of the clinic. Um, and as we as we go further into the film, we realize just how much. Uh, again, going back to the idea of the military, just how much the military plays a part in this narrative. There are children seen playing in a bomb shelter. Um, yeah. It, all of it, the, the presence of the military, uh, again, hovers over this film and all of his films quite often. People talk about wars. They talk about real ones, historical ones, spiritual ones, material ones, and their aftermath. They're always part of the narrative. Um, we, we in, in fact, we learned that Jen's first husband she describes him, uh, he was also a soldier, and she describes him as a monster. So mm. her past with military uh, people uh, colors her experience here as well. So, yeah, the I don't know if the lights are sci-fi or real. I have never seen this kind of light therapy in any other uh, uh, place than this particular movie. But doesn't it look cool? <laughs> it is so cool. And, and again, there's those shots where you feel the lights sort of spilling out into the rest of the world. Unbelievable. Uh, Unbelievable. So I want to I, I want to so say like I, what I found again, I, I don't want to be like, oh, I, I'm decoding the film. But a shot that really felt like it spoke the world to me, which I I think it might be the last one of the film, but it was the 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 kids playing soccer yes. on a field that has yeah. been 
totally destroyed as the, yes. as uh, what I think might be Jen is watching them. Yes. This idea of her watching them adjusting to how this like this soccer pitch has been ruined. You can't play soccer on this field. <laughs> right. It's not real. Uh, for whatever reason, of all the things that happened in this movie, that stuck with me for like days after watching it. Just thinking about that that we're adjusting to what we have here. And yes. that, that there's an inherent question about that image of like, sh- what do you do about this? I I, I feel like, I, and maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like there's an implied question to the audience about that image. As as right before that scene, um, of the kids playing on the on the mounds of dirt that the the fiber optic company have have dug up, uh, there is some voiceover narration, and we are, I assume meant to think that that this is uh it uh the soldier giving the narration yeah he says there's a mountain of bricks it spreads out like a flower blossom it stretches to the sky to devour the sun it's very far away and it looks ominous and fearsome it pretends to be a pure flawless being it pretends to be as soft as a child's palm but before it disappears, the walls bulge and change shape, and it knows that when it falls, it will be an astounding sight to behold. And that is what we hear before we see the kids playing on this new landscape and Jen watching them with her eyes wide in what appears to be fear or an attempt to take in as much of it as she can so that she too can adapt to oh. the future that's coming. Okay, can I give you my interpretation of that? Yeah. There's a moment where, and I forget who she's talking to. I think it might be the psychic woman who's being occupied by it, right? Um, and the woman says, if you're trying, because she says, I feel like I'm in a dream. Yeah. And she yeah. says, if you're trying to wake up, open your eyes really wide. Yes. That was the reference. Like, yeah. It's like she's trying to wake up from yes. whatever dream or nightmare this is of these kids playing in this desecrated field it, it it's haunting it's a fucking haunting image yeah, it's such a disturbing image especially as an asian dude like that shit fucked me up just the image of her smiling with her eyes like that fucked me up dead ass the other that shit was brutal the other image i found to be weirdly haunting was the long shot of the people by the river and they just keep switching seats uh-huh. And I couldn't figure out why they were switching seats and it was it was it was it was upsetting enough that I re I rewound and rewatched that sequence cuz I was like what is happening here and why is it happening? I I I've gone back to that moment again and again in watching this film uh a few times and and for a long time it it baffled me and and I and I kept thinking to myself why are they switching places but not going anywhere? Right. And yeah. and then I thought, oh, they're switching places and not going anywhere. Right, exactly. <laughs> it's right in front of your face, Dave. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. Um because this is a movie that is again, it elicits it elicits a lot out of us, but it can feel a bit impenetrable. I don't know how much we want to get into trying to explain or unpack things but i don't want to leave people feeling like we didn't discuss it enough either so i'm sort of at an impasse what do you guys think is important to say i think a lot of people listening to this probably will have watched it 
you know, in preparation for the episode. But for those people listening who maybe haven't, what do we want to say to sort of help people understand what I think all three of us which would, would feel, which is like, you need to watch this fucking movie. Like, I, I just think this is a yeah. must watch. How, how, how would you convince people of that without trying to like, I don't know, uh, demystify the film? I think there is a kind of filmmaking that is uh, yeah, uh, straightforward and clear and didactic and explanatory and wants to tell you every single thing you need to know and it's underlined and you can leave that film having felt as though you have read a text, right? One that you could study and go back and be quizzed on later. <laughs> um, this is not that film. And this is not the kind of films that he tends to make. They make uh, uh, emotional sense. They make uh, allegorical sense. They make metaphorical sense. They don't always come to you and say, here's what I mean by this. And so you can approach these, you know, quiet, beautiful, tranquil looking films and, and experience them on that level and then you come back again and you think, oh, wait, there's something, again, like this narration says, there's something ominous happening here. And and it is a very oblique way of talking about the destruction uh, that history makes, you know, on the, the, the very spiritual, you know, beings that have to walk through life, you know he approaches human beings as though they are both material and spiritual and the material will fuck you up in, in life. And that is something that is always alluded to here, but never, you know, explicitly stated. So you're going to, you're going to experience filmmaking that maybe you're not used to. That's cool. Just let it happen. <laughs> I think it's also yeah. worth naming that there are a few moments that I think are fucking hilarious. We've already sort of talked about them a little bit, but even the one where uh, that they talk about living in Europe and he says, you know, Europeans are living the American dream because yeah. Americans are yeah. too poor. Yeah. If, if that Genius. doesn't make you giggle, I don't know where your, your funny bone is because that yeah. is like just a magical moment to me, which also, also true, fucking true. The fact yeah. that these movies, or this movie in particular, seems to be a treatise on the past, the present, and the future taken in the same step. That these things are all in frame at the very same moment throughout yeah. the entire yeah. movie. I think that that's a, I mean, how do you explain that to somebody? Just like Dave said, you just have to let it happen to you. There is no interpretation. You have to be there, and you have to be present for it, even though you might fall asleep as the director intended. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yes. they're, they're, but all of it is there and it's so stunning. I, I, I feel like I just want to follow Jen into another, uh, not quite adventure, another series of events that wouldn't quite qualify as an adventure. Like, I don't know why, but I just, I, again, um, none of the performances in these films are, I, I guess, okay, uh, Tropical Malady, there's moments where a lot are asked of these actors in the second half that might be mm. seen as more dramatic and over the top, you know, when, when whatever. But uh, Cemetery Splendor, and I would say Uncle Boon Me as well, mostly people are not asked to do a lot of emoting. They're right. very natural. And yet, 
I want to go places with Jen. I find her that both the way she's written, but also the performance by that actress, fucking enchanting. I want to see what else happens with her. Like, I just want to see where her life goes from here. If if he had a secret franchise where he's like, actually, Jen is the hero of the next four movies. I'm in. <laughs> like, I, let me know what happens with Jen. I don't. Is that weird? Yeah. I just found myself no. wanting to know. No, it's more not about weird. Her. Yeah, that's not weird at all. I, I actually uh, looked up the cast list of his new film um, that's about to premiere at Cannes. Uh, it stars Tilda Swinton, um, and yeah, and um, and 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 Jen is not in this one, even though again she's been in several of his other films. But I I'm with you on her. Um, she she soothes me yes. when I when I when I see her in his films. Her presence is very soothing to me, and I uh, I love watching this actress, and I, she doesn't really do other directors films he's she's just in his uh but i'm i'm really i'm really into her performances and how uh how much warmth and there and humor there is uh in her presence yeah. well yeah. In, in uncle boon me she's sort of the voice of reason because she's the one who's like yeah constantly pointing out why are we doing this what's happening here why are we going in the jungle but it's like you need her there so that you're reminded that we're still in the real world that it's not yeah she's like our entry point yes yes viewers yeah man man, so good all right fellas anything else we want to say here that needs to be said um, either for our listeners who are you know about to take this journey or for listeners who've who've watched it because we've asked them to and are here to hear what we think about it is there anything I, again I, I'm, I'm not inclined to have a final wrap-up or a final bow put on this right. because I do think there's something you know uh, de- there's a lot to be interpreted here but I do want to give us a chance for any sort of final thoughts before we move to to the end uh, anything uh, I'll, let's start with you Josh and then we'll end with our guest Dave um, I definitely think it's a movie the, these movies are finite statements right but they're infinite in their implication and I, I mean that's what I came away watching all three of these movies this week with you know what I mean like these things are the they're so beautiful and uh, they left me speechless. (laughs) So I can't really say there's, there's like you said, Liam, there's no bow to be put on on it. Just take it in and let it happen to you. There's a sign on a tree. Yeah. Yeah. In, 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 in cemetery. Um, And, and it says when we offend someone, we want to be forgiven. Yeah. But, But when we are offended, we forget how to forgive. And that, when I saw that sign on the tree, that felt to me like a way to, to approach this film. Oh, uh, if, the, if there was a thesis for Cemetery of Splendor, it would feel like that was the thesis to me. Um, and I, I think in the films of where Seth Kuhn, we have uh, uh, this, this friction, this tension between... Uh, as you said, Josh, the past, the present, and the future, and how do we reconcile all of them? Um, and on one level, you can't, uh, but on another, you know, you can try. <laughs> and so, that's for me. That is that is the that's that's the the, the atmosphere for me that these films live in. Yeah. 
yeah, I, I, I find what both of you said pretty sufficient. I will, I will cop to if there's a, uh, if there's a, a bad habit of, uh, you know, former theology students, it's looking for the theological everywhere. You right. know what I mean? Uh, yeah. Especially, especially those of us who are no longer churchgoers, because we still, we still want to, we still want a taste of that, even if we don't want to commit to it. And so, right. uh, I don't want to put that too hard here, but I do think there is a kind of person who is no longer interested in, um, in putting magic goggles on, but isn't comfortable with the idea that everything is uh lacks anything enchanting and what this movie and a lot of his movies do is tell you a very realistic story in which things happen that for westerners i would suggest feel unbelievable or unnatural or whatever but maybe and maybe he feels they are too and it's just a storytelling device but the way they're presented is never in a way that's like this is this is the silly part you know what I mean? This is the this is the ridiculous part. This is just part of the story. This is part of what happens. Yeah. And I think there's something about that that I find uh, enchanting, and even as it can be confounding in its own way as well. So I don't know. You should see you, if you're listening to this. Go 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 find this movie. It's not hard to find. I will say, Tropical Malady hard to find. Not streaming anywhere. It's going to take an effort on your part to to catch it if you want to catch it, and you know we apologize for that. But you know it's on YouTube. Yeah, you can catch it on YouTube. It's on uh, YouTube. Cemetery <laughs> Cemetery of Splendor is a little bit more available. Uh, yes. I think. Um, yeah. So, uh, and of course, so is Uncle Boon Me. We recommend that one as well, and as well as uh, for me and Josh, I think we're going to try to find his other films too right even the short films 100 yeah, um, yep. because that's you know we we are on board now i i kind of knew i would be but now i've confirmed yeah, this that we is are kind of our lane this is 100 percent what we like yes yes very much so, so you know i'm i'm fucking down let's do this yo <laughs> dave thank you for being a guest you have been a charming and gracious guest thank you uh, for having me we're so this has been a joy um i obviously everyone should listen to linoleum knife is there anything you want to plug besides that whether that's the patreon or your own social media or maybe some of the shows that your partner and and love do what i don't know <laughs> I, this is just the segment for you to plug and i don't know what you want to plug um golly um God, he does so many fucking other. He podcasts. does so many fucking podcasts. <laughs> you know, that's not his show. Then this isn't his episode. No, there, it's Dave, true. So it's you. What do you? What do you think is well, important, the, the, Dave? The ones, the ones I, the ones I do are linoleum knife and the family of linoleum knife podcasts that exist within our Patreon uh, ladder. Um, so I don't know. Uh, I guess the thing I want to say to folks uh, is, don't yell at me for picking these films today, and. Um, Go listen to us at Linoleum Knife, and maybe you'll like us, and maybe uh, you won't. Um, you can follow me on Twitter, I guess. Uh, I'm D. Leland White there. Leland is my middle name, L-E-L-A-N-D. Uh, and that's my same uh, situation on Instagram. I'm barely on Facebook. D don't even bother with me on Facebook. Um, but, uh, yeah, I have nothing to promote. Really, other than linoleum knife, I, I feel Alonzo you. I, allow me to supplement here and say I am a Patreon supporter of linoleum knife, and uh, I really, 
uh, I, I'm not one of these people that jumps on Patreons, but I was very much like, there's a lot of shows. There's a lot of extra content on the Linoleum Knife Patreon, so I need to at least check it out. And I am very, I'm a satisfied member of the Linoleum Knife uh, oh. Patreon family because so much. I think the content is very good. It's, it's, I'm never disappointed. The, the only thing I will say is I need to get better at watching the movies. Uh, they they do an, one of the many shows they do on the Patreon is uh, Linoleum Knife presents more Linoleum Knife, and um, <laughs> those episodes are in depth enough that I need to have watched the movie to really. I think I think your main feed, uh, you don't need to have watched the movies to find the reviews and the conversation insightful. And in fact, yeah. for those of us who aren't afraid of spoilers, even though there aren't usually spoilers, um, but I know we some try to are, keep those to a minimum. Yeah. Some people are ultra sensitive though. And I get that. But for yeah. me, I like hearing what a critic has to say before I go see a movie. It doesn't ruin the movie for me. Um, it, it, it actually enhances my desire to see it when I hear what someone else has to say. And that, that doesn't have to be positive either. Um, but I will say sometimes y'all have liked things that then I've checked out because you liked it. And so I I appreciate that uh, a lot. So I think people should check it out. Uh, Josh, if people enjoy this show, maybe we have some first-time listeners, what should they do? Uh, They should rate, review, and subscribe because that is the currency that people like us care about. (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately, I guess. uh, You know, and tell a friend, man. Tell a friend. Tell a fellow punk. uh, Whatever. Yeah. And if, if you guys like us, feel free to let us know on the socials. Yeah, and uh, we definitely love hearing from you. So come join. We're we're C I N E P U N X on everything: Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. That's that's where we're at. You can also follow us individually. I'm at Liam Rules R U L Z. Josh is at uh, Pogi Fat Boy. <laughs> mm-hmm. He is uh, I. And uh, you know, uh, honestly, that's all we're ever looking for from folks: word of mouth, and also like we're part of a family of podcasts. There's a ton of great podcasts on the network, whether that's fellow movie shows like Horror Business or Cinema Smorgasbord or Evil Eye, or you know, some of our other shows like Fat Girl Hacks, uh, The Tomb of Ideas, uh, Help for the Helpers. We really are expanding our cultural offerings, and we really think that there's a lot there for people to enjoy. And we we really treasure being a platform for a variety of people so check it out i think you'll find something you like uh otherwise hey thanks for listening we love you you're great and we'll talk to you soon smoke ball do you scan the night sky in search of unidentified aerial phenomena do you lose sleep over strange projects funded by the cia ever wonder which orifices ectoplasm comes out of come explore the unexplained and unexplainable with us on our podcast weird obscure and possibly unsafe we'll talk about telpomancy haunted railroads sentient umbrella spirits mind-altering video games remote viewing spongebob conspiracy theories and only gets weirder from there Each episode will share three stories about all the weird things they tell you not to believe. Weird, obscure, and possibly unsafe. Available anywhere you get your podcasts. Hey! Hey!